Before mighty Darkseid came to the throne, he searched the universe for the ultimate weapon, the anti-life equation, the key to controlling all life and all will throughout the multiverse. He found it hidden on a primitive planet, but before... The story he... of the Defiance is well known. I have found the primitive planet, the world that fought back. It is Earth. The anti-life equation is carved into the surface of this very world. Are you certain? I have seen it. I have looked with my own eyes. Welcome to the third part of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. Look at the Batman portion of the DC Universe. How many can die in your arms before you grow numb to death? Listen in as Garrett. Oh, I'm really, really missing Superman right now. Matt. Is it just me, or is it getting crazier out there? And Adam. I'm your best friend. Continue their look at all cinematic incarnations starring the Cape Crusader. They say, if you want to tell a story right, you got to start at the beginning. Included on this leg of the retrospective are reviews of Joker. My life is nothing but a comedy. Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. It took losing something I truly loved for me to see that the target on my back was bigger than I thought. Zack Snyder's Justice League. My lord, I am but your humble servant. The Suicide Squad. <laughs> You're laughing at me for, man. Why the fuck are you in your underwear? Tighty whiteies, really? And Matt Reeves' latest cinematic incarnation, The Batman. He's the only one we didn't get. Keep coming back in the coming months, as the boys will continue their look at each film in the cinematic DC universe, one film at a time. We could watch the whole thing together. Watch what? Everything! All coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Joker, released October 4th, 2019. Budget was $60 million. Box office, $1.074 billion. Yes, I said billion. B? And this, with a B. And this is directed by Todd Phillips. Yes, that Todd Phillips. Oh my God, Joker, Joker, Joker. When you talk Joker, the things that come to mind, you have, we've covered all of them. Cesar Romero, we have Jack Nicholson, we have, of course, Heath Ledger, who me and Goudreau covered over at Binge with Jack. And then we had, which we covered just a couple weeks ago, we had Jared Leto. Now we have Joaquin Phoenix, and I have to ask you guys, is there any version of Arthur Fleck in the comics? Not a one. No. This name was made up for this film. Okay. All right, well, I remember when this was coming out, and here's the thing about this movie. I stayed away from it in theaters, and I think the reason why I stayed away from it, I I remember the country was just a weird place to live around that time. And this movie had what I figured to be, and God, don't ever make me the head of a studio, but I thought it had the wrong kind of hype going for it, where there were a lot of things going around that there's going to be extra security in theaters, and there's going to be extra police officers, and they were thinking that there would be more shootings going on at these theaters, and, of course, that didn't happen. However, I remember about the month after this movie had come out, people don't know, I live in Reno, Nevada, and there's a zombie crawl that happens in Reno every year, 
And about November of 2019, a guy went on the zombie crawl, which is pretty much you're going from place to place. You're going from bar to bar, walking and getting beers as you go. A gentleman who called himself Arthur Fleck killed somebody. And then, yeah, he told police his name was Arthur Fleck. So it just had the wrong hype, and it just had a wrong kind of stink on it, and I stayed away from it until it was released on Blu-ray. I bought the Blu-ray the day it came out. I'm like, okay, let me see what this is. And uh, that's how I watched it for the first time. Goudreau, you mentioned last week you saw this movie in theaters, correct? Yes, I did. And it was a full theater, and I went to like a 10 o'clock showing on on a weeknight. Because I wanted to limit my chances of seeing kids in that theater. And every time I say that, I have the worst luck on the planet. Because you could slap an R rating. You can you could do whatever you want to sell this movie as not for kids. But because that name has all the brain power in the world, parents won't even bat an eye. So I, I was very upset. But I was also very upset that this movie got announced in the first place. <laughs> because when I heard that this was actually going to be a thing, and we'll talk about the production history of this movie and how it evolved. But initially, the idea of doing a Joker movie really alienated me because my biggest worry was twofold. Number one, is the Joker's origin, whatever they choose to do, is that going to take away from the character's mystique? And two, and I think this is the more important one, what in God's name are they going to do without Batman being involved? Because the Joker is exclusively defined by Batman. We have had Batman's stories without the Joker. We have far fewer great Joker stories without Batman whatsoever. So I was very disinterested in this movie from its announcement, and largely also because of the all the clusterfuckery that was, how is that for a word, that was happening at Warner Brothers soured me on anything they announced. Because after Suicide Squad, I said to myself, I don't believe a word this studio is ever going to tell me, and I am going into every single movie they put out, regardless of it being in their shared universe, arms folded, leg crossed, likely smoking a cigarette. I don't smoke, but some of these movies have made me reconsider, especially this one with the amount of cigarettes they smoke. Because the greatest villain is not Batman in this universe with lung cancer for this Joker. But there was a lot of stuff that was not selling me on this from its inception. All right, Adam, you of the big comic book lore, you of the, I love reading The Killing Joke. What'd you think when they announced that we were going to get a whole Joker origin story? Why? What was my (laughs) thought? Why, why, why are you, why so serious? Why are you going to do a Joker movie without Batman in it, without the other stuff? Like how? You know, and, and for what good reason? The only bright side that I saw was like, okay, it's fairly low budget. You know, I think that's a very smart move. Unfortunately, some of the decisions that Warner Brothers Discoveries made in scuttling some of their quote-unquote lower 50 to $70 million movies is unfortunate because I think you can do some creative stuff. The only thing that I was pretty happy with was Joaquin Phoenix. Huge, huge fan of him as an actor. I think he's immensely talented. Todd Phillips, I didn't care about whatsoever. I've not seen a single Hangover movie, not seen, what is it, War Dogs, not seen A Star is Born. I like old school. I think it's the only thing I've seen that he's done. But Todd Phillips wasn't necessarily a draw for me. It was only Joaquin Phoenix. I was there opening weekend, my wife and I, and that was with, and I hate to sound like this guy, But the media really, really tried to tell people to stay away from this movie. I mean, for weeks beforehand, it was, this is an incel celebratory piece, and it does nothing but validate people in Trump's America 
and there's going to be shootings, and it's going to be your fault if you go. That was the narrative. And like it or not, that shit was out there. And it was very disingenuous, and I don't know where that came from, but none of that happened. None of it. The only thing we got was people dancing downstairs. So I don't know what the hubaloo was, but it was very, very unfortunate. But I'm glad to see that this movie was able to at least overcome part of that in getting people to the theaters of a, a risky venture. I mean, an R-rated Joker movie. Like Matt, I was really hoping to not see kids in this because I don't know how many times I've been to R-rated movies, be it Deadpool, Deadpool 2, Alien Covenant, though... I told the kid he could stay there and keep my seat so that I could fucking leave for that one. But I was really hoping that this would be an adult artsy type of movie because that's what it seemed like they were selling it as. But if that's what it is, why are you making it about the Joker? And it's not the Joker. It's just Joker. And, yeah, I was interested to see if it would put a smile on my face when I went to see it. You mentioned Joaquin Phoenix. Matt, why isn't this Jared Leto? So that's the funny thing. There was going to be a standalone this movie, and Jared Leto was going to get his own movie, which I guess, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, morphed into Birds of Prey somehow? Yeah, it was the two of them, and then it was more him with her, and then it's just got cut out when the screenwriting changed, and yeah, he was cut completely except for previous footage in a back shot. Yeah, so apparently, and this is conjecture, but I think there is some validity, Jared Leto was fucking pissed when they announced yes, this movie. Yes, he was. Oh, yeah. <sighs> He has no one to blame but himself, if you want my humble estimation. If he didn't pull all that peripheral method bullshit, he probably could have justified getting another shot. But you also have to remember that when this movie was announced, originally Leonardo DiCaprio was who Warner Brothers was pushing for. Yeah, you and I, it, it's so ironic that the next retrospective you and I are doing is DiCaprio and Scorsese, because that's the exact team they wanted to tackle this. Which is funny to me so, because Scorsese came out against comic book movies like, what, a month before this movie even came out. Yeah, and I think well, – let's get into that then since we brought up Scorsese. I think he comes from a place of good intent when he speaks about Marvel being amusement park rides. But him and Coppola, when they trash superhero movies, they come across as it's old man yells at clouds, speaking of The Simpsons. It's that Grandpa Simpson newspaper shot. Mm-hmm. And then for Scorsese to go around and put his name and let the director of this movie just blatantly rip off his being kind. This is a love child of Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. And and shamelessly. I'm not going to call that a problem necessarily if you're looking at this. I mean, because look, Quentin Tarantino has made a career out of stealing shit from other directors. So that's nothing new. But... This is a Scorsese movie to the point where you could put his name as the director. People be like, okay, I guess he made this because his his fingerprints are all over it. Everything from, I thought his comments, it was hypocrisy of the highest order for him to put his name on this. I'm glad Leo said no because what got me interested in this movie was Joaquin Phoenix. That was the only reason I was justified because I can't stand Todd Phillips as a director The Hangover was cute when it first came out, and now it has been beaten down not just by the sequels, but by the hype that has surrounded it to where I think the movie is almost unwatchable now. And it's amazing that Bradley Cooper has gone on to have the career that he has had. He's a producer on this. (laughs) That was also funny. I thought he would have been an inspired choice to actually play the joke. Mm -hmm. Because once the Hangover series was done, I think he's proven to be one of our best actors. 
very transformative for a guy who looks like he should be doing the stuff that Brad Pitt did in his heyday or George Clooney. But having him as a producer was interesting. But the Joaquin factor, two reasons. Number one, tremendous actor, always has been. It sucks that we lost his brother, mm-hmm. but I think Joaquin has carried the legacy well, and largely because he had turned down a lot of superhero mm-hmm. movies before this. Doctor Strange. Uh, the two big ones before that, they wanted him for the Hulk. Oh, that's right. But his big thing was, I don't want to do multi-film contracts, which again, speaking of hypocrisy, because this, this is getting a sequel, so so much for standalone, uh, Mr. Phoenix and Scorsese, but that was what sold me, because he, he is very selective, very picky, and he brings his A-game to everything he does. So casting him as the Joker, I thought was very inspired, but, my, but again, I couldn't get around the fact that there was not going to be a Batman for him to face off against. Yeah, and when Tafel talked about that, he mentioned that he thought of this as like a one-off comic. Like, again, it comes up every one of our fucking podcasts, like The Killing Joke. You know, that's what he kind of thought of this as. And we'll talk about it, but it's, um, to me, it just feels like they wanted to do a hardcore tribute to Scorsese. They couldn't do it with just calling somebody Scott Phillips. They had to put another character in the middle of it, and they called the character Joker because that's what sells tickets. I also will say that one thing that I think came from a good place was the idea of doing a stripped down comic book movie. Yeah. Taking it. Mm hmm. No sky portals, no swirling vortexes of death. Sort of taking what Logan did, where we are looking at a specific genre and using that as our as our basis. Because Logan was made for a fraction of what the big budget X Men movies were made for. Yep. You know, going R rated, which Logan did, which Deadpool really started off. But I think Logan took it to its fullest extent from from a maturity standpoint. You know, Deadpool is very crass and juvenile. Um, so I think this was following the right trend. And if you were going to do a Joker movie, doing it stripped down, doing it as a period piece, I liked their tactics. But when the trailers were coming out, the first thing we got was the Joaquin screen test. Screen test, yeah. Where they showed the makeup for the first time. And I thought it was a very audacious look. Like, I really dug uh, what they came up with. It's not a purple suit he's wearing. It's actual makeup. Not like Heath Ledger's war paint. It looks like what a clown would wear. Mm-hmm. The, the, the trailers were coming out. I said wow, this actually looks like something I would want to go see. So I sort of did a 180 where I went from not really giving a flying fuck to tremendously curious about what they were going to do. Was I confident? No. Was I curious? Yes. Let's talk about the origins of this. Not really too much to talk about, quite honestly, but what what Phillips decided to do was he wanted to do this, as I mentioned. He wanted to do this as a one-off. He wanted to do it in the tradition of Scorsese's 70s flicks, to the point where he even got one of Scorsese's longtime associates to produce this. Her name's Emma Koskoff. She's a producer on this. And he wrote the script with Scott Silver, who he wrote The Fighter, which is one of my favorite movies of the past 15 years, actually. I I really enjoy that film. And he did uncredited rewrites on X-Men Origins Wolverine. (laughs) Which me and Matt talked about years ago on Binge. And then, you know, after years of fledgling it, they couldn't get the right green light on it. Warner Brothers just would not pull the trigger on this. Deadpool comes out, is a massive hit, as is, as you mentioned, Matt, as is Logan. And around that time, he came back and he's like, look, here's the idea I have. And they're like, all right, let's do it. It's just funny to me that Leto isn't the one here. It just brings to mind that maybe Phillips, did he have Phoenix in mind from the start? Did he write the script with him in mind? Do you know that, Matt? 
He said he did. There was a making of on HBO Max, which is one of the best things about that platform is they'll do all the special features yep. that you used to get on physical media. And he talked about how he wrote the script and he did someone did the concept art and he showed it to Bradley Cooper and they both came up with Joaquin Phoenix like from the start. Warner Brothers basically said, here's $50 million, go do whatever the fuck you want, which we can argue about whether or not that's the right move considering how micromanaged Suicide Squad was. Yeah. But they said, yeah, Joaquin is, Joaquin's who we want, and they pitched it to him, and he signed on pretty much right away. And it was a big deal when they mm-hmm. announced it, largely because Joaquin brought a credibility that I don't think Jared Leto would have brought. Now, the movie comes out, as I mentioned, the movie makes over a billion dollars for something that wasn't picked to make more than 40 in on its entire run. To make a billion dollars, I mean, that is some feat. And... It ends up winning Joaquin Phoenix the Oscar for Best Actor the second time that the same character has won two actors an Oscar. The first time was Brando and De Niro, ironically De Niro, for The Godfather and Godfather Part Two. So what a hit. It gets an eight-minute standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival. And we were all set. It was, it was set to be released. And, you, and as we mentioned earlier, a lot of the weird things coming out about it, a lot of things like, you know, people were scaring, trying to scare you away from watching this. But Adam, would you agree with me that that kind of probably drew people in, right? I think it did a certain aspect of those that are going to go see it. I think where those that it'll keep away are the over a certain age crowd, the older adults who maybe aren't rushing out to see a movie with Joker in the title, but maybe would be going out to see a Martin. Scorsese-looking film. And I think maybe that's why this continued to play so well for so long, you know, because this wasn't, you know, Avengers where it opened, uh, you know, 250, mm-hmm. 400 million, 500 million worldwide opening weekend. No, this thing was more of a Titanic Avatar style where it kept doing well, not just on the weekends, but during the week where you get the... 40-plus, 50-plus, 60-plus crowd to go see films. And I think that's worked out that way. And I think maybe that there wasn't an initial rush that weekend kind of helped the word of mouth to grow, to spread. You know, it's the anti-Netflix movement. You know, Netflix drops it, and they better bust their nut that opening weekend really well because then you don't talk about a movie anymore or a series. When you can talk about a film for three four, five, six weeks, it's going to continue to build, continue to grow, and those grosses are going to continue to grow. And I think, you know, they may have screwed the pooch by trying to shit-can this movie and scaring people away. It may have ended up being a benefit long-term. All right. Before I get into the plot, I just want to say, next to the ending of this retrospective, The Batman, this might be the review I've been looking forward to the most. Because honestly, I don't know how you guys are going to come at this. And as we get into this, so, you know, to, for those of our our listeners who wonder, we really try to not talk about, and we don't, we no. don't talk about these movies ahead of time. We have a chat group just to make sure we know what we're discussing, but we stay away from letting each other know opinions so, so that when we talk about it here, we're kind of surprising ourselves for the first time. And yeah, I agree with you. I was loving some of these discussions just for the reason of, I don't know how everybody feels about it. And that has me excited. And I hope it does our listeners as well. I have no idea how any of you feel about the Batman. So the ending of this is, again, that's my most anticipated. So let's just get in here. So we're seeing the old Warner Brothers logo, putting a smack dab in the middle of 1981, which is where this film takes place. Adam, this really put me in mind of like those movies that you and I used to watch. Like This is like the beginning of The Shining, this, this whole Warner Brothers logo. you know, I, I really dug seeing this, actually. To me, this is 
putting in a VHS of Taxi Driver. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't want to bring up Scorsese every 30 seconds, but, you know, that name's going to come up a lot, you know, to get ready for it. But that's what this Warner Brothers logo, The Shining and Taxi, just that mm-hmm. 70s, 80s logo, the color, yep. the black on, like, I admire because it is saying, hey, this isn't now. We're throwing this back to then, and this is the, you know, it lets you know five seconds into this movie that we're doing something a little different. We're in the middle of a garbage strike, as we're seeing uh, Joaquin Phoenix. He's applying the Joker makeup, and let's talk about Phoenix right off the bat here. Like I mentioned, he won the Oscar for this, got a lot of good praise. Uh, and, and let's not forget, we, we praise his acting, but he didn't really have a really good public outlook at the, around this time because he had made that weird appearance on Letterman. I don't know if you guys ever saw it, where he, he, was, he felt like he was quote-unquote in character, but he just came off as a total dick. And I, I, uh, I really didn't like the feeling I was getting and seeing the buildup to this. So he had a lot to do to win me over here. But I got to say, you know, eventually he does win me over, and I really enjoy his portrayal. He lost 52 pounds for this. It definitely shows. We were also hearing how bad his health was around this, t- around this time as he was, you know, he kept the weight off. Doctors warn you all the time, this big weight loss is not good for you. They have CGI now, guys. You really don't have to do this anymore. But he, uh, he took it upon himself to do it. I think he's pretty phenomenal in this movie. What do you guys feel? I agree, and I think it starts off right here. I mean, he's... When he's doing this smile on his face here at the beginning that drops into a into that sad clown face, he's got a rubberized face that I didn't realize he could do. That what looks like a tear from the makeup, you know, coming down the side of his face is just kind of telling. And yeah, I admire the fact that he's able to transform his body and put himself into this without doing the things that Leto did to his castmates. He's able to to do to himself what he needs to get in the role, not fuck around with everybody else that's involved with this movie. From shot one, I think he's absolutely captivating as Arthur Fleck. I was going into this movie expecting Joaquin Phoenix to be good, but to me this was sort of otherworldly, and I think he elevates a lot of this movie around him, which I think plays a factor in why he won Best Actor. It's working with the material you're given, and elevating it to the best of your ability. Sometimes what you get is great, and that's why you win Oscars, like Cuba Gunning Jr. and Judy mm-hmm. Dench, among other people. Mm-hmm. But everything he does from a physical standpoint is amazing to watch, from the, the Jim Carrey-esque rubbery face to expressing pain when he's laughing uncontrollably because he has that condition. I was... Very, very taken aback, and I think it was a well-deserved win. But this is also the ultimate fuck you to Jared Leto. He's in between two actors who won Oscars for playing the Joker. (laughs) Yes. He's forcing a smile, and then we cut to credits. We have a piano on the sidewalk, clowns everywhere, looting galore. As Arthur gets his sign stolen as well as his ass kicked. (laughs) Uh, A slow pan out shot of him just writhing on the ground And then we cut to him laughing or practicing his laugh Now, I heard that he got this laugh He really, really worked on this laugh a lot And uh, even Phillips said that when he was off set He was doing this just randomly And according to them, it it was kind of like them showing a sign That he was mentally ill at this point 
Now, this is something I do as well. Like, I will think of random stuff, and I will just start laughing. And, and Jen's even caught me a couple of times, and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm just like, it, it's a thing of mine. Like, I, I do it when I'm nervous a lot. I've done it when I'm in my office at work. Like, I'll just think of something. And it's also, you know, like, I'll think of something that happened at work, and it'll make me just kind of cringe and laugh a little bit. It's just a habit of mine. And I think Phoenix really captures that very well in this to the point where, I mean, it's almost transgressive the way he does this. What are you guys feeling about his laugh in this movie? You know, when I heard about it, because before the film came out, I was hearing, and I think it might have been one of the things, and Kevin Smith, you need to learn to shut the fuck up and stop spoiling stuff on your podcast, please. But I had heard that it was going to be a Tourette's-like laugh that he couldn't help. And I was like, ugh, oh my God, what a horrible idea, taking away from it, Jesus. So I had that going in, and I was dead set against it. And he makes it so uncomfortable you have empathy and sympathy for what he's doing with it because he looks pained when he's laughing and trying not to. And I cannot believe that he's laughing and yet his face holds such sorrow while he's doing it. And damn, it's just like it feels painful to watch him do it. And it works for me being totally against what this laugh was going to be. I can't believe the work he did to put in to make it so unnerving and so believable for this characterization. That was my question as well is it was publicized between Kevin Smith and some other outlets because this premiered at I think it was Venice that this Joker had mental disorders that likely were going to factor into his state of mind in this condition. And when I heard that I thought it's going to be hard enough to make a movie about the Joker where you don't make him the hero, which was also my big fear that this was going to not demonize the Joker and treat him as, as a force of good, and adding a mental problem uh, among several, because he's got quite a few. Uh, you know, he's got delusions of grandeur. He's got, you know, the laughing uncontrollably. He's got most likely a certain degree of narcissism, which all, all Jokers have. But I think it, it this could have gone so wrong. This could have been what Robert Dye Jr.'s character talked about in Tropic Thunder of going full retard. Mm-hmm. You know, this could have been Sean Penn and I am Sam which is, I think, the worst example of that. I think it is it is handled delicately, and it is brilliantly portrayed. I have no qualms about anything that Joaquin Phoenix does with what he's, he's given to do. So we see that he's at a shrink appointment, and it's said that people are tense as they are trying to get jobs. And Arthur, he brings his journal and joke diary. He writes, I just hope my death makes more sense than my life. And he says that he felt better when he was locked up in a mental ward as we flash back to him smashing his head into a psycho ward wall. Okay, pause. All right. This is where I think it's important for for me. And I've, I've now seen this movie a, a number of different times. And I think this movie takes that unreliable narrator to a completely new level depending on how you decide to watch it. I think in this movie there's the potential that you could take it that he dies – any number of places in the course of this movie, including in the opening scene. His flower starts spurting water out of it. I think you could take it that he died in that opening scene. Interesting. So do you think he, he died or do you think, I mean, I'm not going to spoil the rest of this review, but, you know, he, he meets somebody in his building. Do you think it, he died or that he's imagining things? I think you can take, especially right here, because you see it. And then the last time that I've seen this movie, or when, sorry, when I watched it for this, I'd forgotten that you get this like two seconds of him hitting his head in the Arkham or in the asylum that we see him when he mentions it. I had completely forgotten about that. And then it ties into the very end of this film. You could also take this entire movie 
is nothing but a delusion of him while he's inside the asylum. Everything in it. So I love that everything in here, depending on how you want to take it, and I like taking it this way, is an unreliable narrator. Take it all as gospel that it's all happening, or take it all as nothing is happening. It's a choose-your-own-adventure, depending on how you want to play it. So that's something I really appreciate about this movie, is the way they use POV. What problems I have, and I do have some, I think the script for this movie is, at points, very flimsy and very straightforward. But I think they do get around that by how it's portrayed as him honoring the Joker as the unreliable narrator. Uh, You can interpret this however you want. And with that said, I think there are valid takes for almost all of them. Me personally, because the movie will sidetrack and make it explicitly clear when he is... Explicitly clear is not maybe too strong of a word, but there are moments where reality snaps and Mm -hmm. that, that separation occurs. Those, to me, are the only moments that can be really taken at face value. Everything else I think you can interpret as, if not in completely in his head, he is exaggerating them. Like certain scenes where, because it's his point of view, maybe they didn't happen that way, or characters were nowhere near as mean to him as they're depicted. His worldview is because he thinks that everyone treats him like shit, but maybe they don't, and that's just how he views the city. Because Go- this Gotham is, it needs a Batman to come in and clean it up. Because there, there's trash all on, all on the sidewalks. It looks like, when there were parts in New York that were, bi- the boroughs that were basically unlivable until, you know, the, uh, the Giuliani administration. Uh, sort of like, kind of what Robocop was satirizing and, and depicting with, with its society. I think that's really what they're pulling from. That's where I see the, the Scorsese influence, as well as the opening with the clown temp agency, basically. It's like the opening of Taxi Driver, where it's like, all right, you go here, you go here, you do that. I, I think it, it does wear its influences too much on its sleeve, to the point where it might as well be a tattoo. But I do think that the POV offsets a lot of my criticisms about the writing. You guys mentioned the, the garbage on the ground. Then that's something that I really paid attention to while watching it, because like I mentioned, this was only my second time watching this film, but I really had a keen eye on every single detail. We're, we're hearing that there's a garbage strike, and in order to illustrate this, we see nothing but garbage on that ground. I mean, it, it's everywhere. So you definitely feel the grime that comes off here. And I, I will use this opportunity to go ahead and say, too, I think the cinematography in this movie is fucking beautiful. I think the the colors really stand out. I think we are in primary color land when we when he's in the suit and when he has the wig and makeup on. But man, it really has those dark browns going when uh, we're in dark dark situations. You know, I, I think if anything, this movie is beautiful to look at. And this is how you shoot a dark movie with a dark tone with a bleak world view. You don't need to put a blue gray is Anderson filter on your lens to do so. You can shoot and have a beautiful film that still looks dirty, grungy, post-apocalyptic 80s New York. I mean, that's how ugly this thing looks. And it is ugly in its beautifulness. And yeah, hats off to the cinematography for the way this thing is shot. We hear he's on seven different medications. And then we cut to Arthur riding the bus as he makes a child in front of him laugh at his funny faces. (laughs) <laughs> but this upsets the kid's mom, and this makes him laugh hysterically, which, man, just awkward, awkward, awkward. I'll be saying that a lot yep. in this podcast. 
we cut to him walking the most famous steps since The Exorcist, I would say. As this, when, when this movie was coming out, <laughs> we saw that shot of him riding those steps. I mean, you can see that gif everywhere. I mean, I think you guys have put it on my wall at least 100 times, or at least in one of my posts on Facebook. I, I like the way they use these, though. It, it, it's, uh, it illustrates how he's feeling each and every time we cut to them, right? Yeah. I mean, his, you can look at his mental state of how he goes up and down these steps. You can look at it as him him traversing the psychosis of his own mind, if you will. We're seeing a lot of mundane stuff here, complete with this very downtrodden score. Now, this score, I was shocked when I saw this because I didn't remember it happening. This score won an Oscar. It was one of the two Oscars that it won, the other being, of course, its star. I don't like this score. Like, it's a very, very weird score that I don't know if they're going for Scorsese, if they're going for Kubrick here. Goudreau, you're big on 70s cinema. Like, what are they going for here? It's definitely not Scorsese, because if you notice, Scorsese, a lot of his music is not orchestrations, it's soundtracks. If if I had to guess they were going for, well, it's really weird, because they're using a lot of cellos, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of violins, trying to evoke almost like a, like a Serpico kind of feel. I, I don't care for the score, but to be honest, it's not distracting. Um, I think it's it's just fine. Well, now that I think about it, the only time he really did use that kind of score was, of course, for Taxi Driver. So I think that might be what they're going for here. But but even Taxi Driver, there was a lot of um, – because it was Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. He has a lot of, you know, a lot of saxophone playing. Uh-huh. They're using a completely different set of instruments for the score. Adam, how do you feel about the score, sir? I think it fits what we're in. The woman that has done it, Hildur – I'm not even going to attempt her last name. <laughs> She's the composer for Chernobyl. Uh, she worked on Sicario. So she brings kind of that really down score. I mean, it sets a mood. I think Kubrick is more in line with the type of feel, but definitely not not the uh, not that there's a happy Kubrick, but you know, definitely not the more lighthearted. But it, I mean, it feels a part of this time in this world for sure. I didn't realize it won the Oscar though. Good for her. Arthur comes home, and we see that he lives with his mom. And this is when we hear the name Thomas Wayne for the first time and that Arthur's mom used to work for that family. And, you know, I have to say, in revisiting this movie, I had forgotten how much the Waynes actually factor into this script. How do you guys feel about that? I mean, we are factoring in the Batman family, which is a big reason why we're including this in this retrospective. It's, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I would have included as much of the Waynes in here as I as they do. Goudreau, do you agree with that decision? I wanted nothing to do with that. Yeah. At this point, if you were going to do a standalone Joker movie, which is lunacy, in my opinion, then you have to be the complete antithesis of everything you know. You can't cherry pick and say, oh, we're going to do a standalone Joker movie, but have not only the Waynes in the movie, but this character actually meet a child Bruce Wayne. Go fuck yourself for this hypocrisy. Yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. This, this is the part that I don't like. Now, you could keep Thomas Wayne as a name. You could have it somebody that the mother keeps talking about, and I could be okay with it. I think it's very telling that it was supposed to be, I think it was supposed to be Alec Baldwin originally playing Thomas Wayne. That's true. Um, If I remember right. And he was out there proudly boasting that he was going to be portraying Trump on screen as Thomas Wayne. And I think that's part of what made them go, eh, we're going to go a different direction. But I don't need to see Thomas Wayne as much as we do, and I sure as fuck, and I'll say it right now, have no desire to see Arthur Fleck, 40s Joker, meet a child Bruce Wayne, ever. And that was one of the things I was scared about in this movie, because they showed it in a trailer before I got a chance to see this movie. Now, 
His mom expresses worry at how skinny Arthur is. <laughs> Honey, you're not the only one. She also says that Thomas Wayne is the only one who can save the city. Now we cut to what's trying to be a Johnny Carson representation, complete with a set, except this is the name Murray Miller, played by Robert De Niro. And you know, I have to say, I didn't watch The King of Comedy until about two years ago. It was my very first time watching that movie. Goudreau, am I right in saying this is the complete inverse of that movie? Isn't De Niro the author character in that? This is the Jerry Lewis character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not The King of Comedy because this movie pales the comparison. There, there is no satire in this movie, really. And I think that movie comments on celebrity worship and media culture in a very sophisticated way. I think here, once you get to everything with the talk show and what he says in the third act, it feels like grandstanding. And it's like those kids who are like, I don't know what I should be mad at, but I know people are upset, so I'm just going to yell and scream about society being unfair. I think all the commentary he says once he gets on that show in the third act is a complete inverse of his arc and does not mesh with what's set up here. I also think De Niro is sleepwalking. The only reason he's here is because of the Scorsese dick-sucking that Todd Phillips does throughout most, most of this movie. Th this is not an influence. This is a hackneyed fan film masquerading as art with the direction. It is horseshit that he was nominated for Best Director by stealing part and parcel from Martin Scorsese. It was weird seeing De Niro here, and I'll agree with you that that's the only reason he is here. But I gotta say, it was nice seeing him, you know, in something other than Meet the Parents and the other bad comedies he did over the years. At least, you know, he was doing something different than what we could become accustomed to since the early 2000s. Yeah, I'll I'll say that there's one reason De Niro is here, and it's because King of Comedy. You know, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, the drapes, you know, are are taken directly from that. So I don't think that's I don't think that's a surprise whatsoever. Um, is the way De Niro sleepwalking in this? Eh, I think De Niro's been sleepwalking in every movie for at least two and a half decades, so I'm not surprised by that whatsoever. I think other than Meet the Parents, I don't think he's done a good movie since Heat. So I think De Niro's one of the most overrated actors this century, since the century started. So for him to be here doing his, his hey, I'm going to be here and give the same face that I've given since I've been 20 years old, I don't get a lot out of Robert De Niro. He's here for the Scorsese connection, and that's it. I don't mind him, but he's only here to make you think of King of Comedy. He's only had one great performance in the last ten years. Well, two if you count his appearance at the Alec Baldwin roast. <laughs> All right, what was his other one? <laughs> I think he's great in Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, go so with yeah, that I haven't one. seen it. Okay. I'll go with that one. Now, this is when... Adam, your assumptions of Arthur's look at reality is altered, I think, because this is when Miller points at Arthur and has him stand up saying that there's something special about him. I mean, we could really say that this is a vision, it's a right? It's a fantasy, yeah. Oh, yeah. He said he's he's watching, you know, the show with his mother. This comes across extremely eerily to me. Um, Arthur Fleck's mother has a a distinct resemblance to, to my late mother-in-law, um, Sue, we miss you and love you. So it's it's weird, and that's always going to be there for me. But it's it's clear when they cut to his lapse from reality, and this is the first direct one that we get, where it's unambiguous that this is a fantasy. We hear Arthur say that his mom is, always tells him to smile and put on a happy face, and this makes Miller have Arthur come down and hold his arms up. And then we see just how eviscerated Arthur's body is as he's in a locker room. I mean, goddamn, why would someone just put their body through this? I get you're going for the performance, but Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, between this and Christian Bale and The Machinist, I'm like, goddamn, you guys. Like, you guys are going to die before you're 50. Which is funny because Bradley, you know, you get some of the people that plump themselves up the same way. Yeah. 
He gets a gun and is told that he better learn to protect himself out there. And then we're hearing the miniature golf line thrown a short person's way. And, you know, what I always respond to people when they ask me if I played basketball in high school is the question of whether they played miniature golf. So this show kind of hit with me. Arthur is told by his boss that the damage taken in the beating is being taken out of his paycheck, which causes him to lose it outside. Arthur is in the elevator in some awkward moments. And they all agree that the building is so awful, which just causes Arthur to imitate putting a gun to his head. So at this point, he's fantasizing about killing himself, right? Or he killed himself. Or he killed himself. But how would he go to Batman if he killed himself here? How would he fight him? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, well that's a whole other ball of wax, is whether or not this is the actual Joker or he's like a prototype. Yeah, I did. There was a lot of discussion of that. Is this is the person who inspires the person who will actually become the Joker, which is almost more insulting that you would have a Joker that's not the Joker. And it's why I don't need a connection to Bruce. So is that what the sequel is going to be? Is like, we're going to see the person that Arthur inspired and then him become the Joker. Fuck if I know. God damn. (laughs) I have no idea what that script could possibly be. Oh my God. Arthur then sponge baths his mom. Yes, I just said that. Who keeps reiterating how good a man Thomas Wayne is. He tells her that he feels his stand-up is ready for the big clubs. And then we cut to him handling a gun in his place. Very Taxi Driver-esque here. Or as Matt says, this is a flat-out steal, right? Yeah, it's the same goddamn shoulder harness. Let me ask you this, Matt, because I think we got into this when we did Carrie. And I'm not defending Todd Phillips in any way. I I completely agree with you. But let me just say, is, is he ripping Scorsese like De Palma rips Hitchcock in his early work? I think it's the worst tendencies when De Palma actually committed that. Mm -hmm. Because the one thing De Palma took advantage of that Hitchcock could not was the excess. You know, he could show people's throats getting slit and just gallons of red paint flying out. He could show boobs that Hitchcock only inferred at most. Because Hitchcock was as minimal as could be when it comes to what you did see. And De Palma, he he also... You do camera shots and stuff, but I, I think this is much, much more of blatant plagiarism than what I would accuse De Palma of. Because De Palma, at the very least, was able to put his own spin on it for a lot of it. Because he also updated it for a modern audience at the time and playing with what standards of practice is with what you do at that time. Whereas I don't feel Todd Phillips is really doing anything to up Scorsese or, or really bring this to a modern context. It's only a period piece so he can steal from Scorsese. This uh, this dancing scene of him dancing in front of this mirror really put me in mind of that dancing scene in Silence of the Lambs until the gun goes off. He has to tell his mom that he's watching a war movie. <laughs> this made me laugh. <laughs> you have a dark so sense of humor, sir. Yes. But it was just, you know, him doing it. And, well, I'm watching a war movie, Mom. <laughs> like It's just something about it is so darkly funny. But this... God damn, I laugh out loud. He gets on a subway, and then we cut to the inside of a dimly lit comedy club with Arthur just laughing very inappropriately. And then we cut to him writing in his journal with some strong violin strings playing as background noise. And then we see Arthur's neighbor show up, who accuses him of following her. Now, this neighbor... Why? Sazie Beats? Yeah, (laughs) Sazie Beats. That's what I'm going to call her, because she's not given the name in this movie, but... 
Is she real? Is she not real? Are we supposed to know? Are we just supposed to assume? Adam, you seem the one who seems to be going with these visions more than the the, the other two of us here. What are you feeling about this? I think she's I think she's here only to to give a sense of his lack of grasp with reality. I think that her her inclusion and the way that it resolves itself, quote unquote, is here just to to show his break. My issue with it is she doesn't fit in the neighborhood, in the apartment complex, anything else. Like you kind of feel like something is off right from the get-go, but maybe you're supposed to feel like something is off from the get-go. There's something uncomfortable every time that they're together, and I think that plays into it. I think she does a fantastic job. I think it's a shame we haven't seen her in more things since then, but yeah, there's a sense of unease every time that Arthur is around her. So Arthur admits to following her, and this segues into him inviting her to one of his stand-up gigs. Speaking of gigs, we cut to his clown job, which he eventually gets fired from because the gun drops out of his costume. (laughs) All right. (laughs) He tries to play it off. He tries to play it off, exactly. (laughs) Oh, kids, a gun fell out. I'm laughing. I'm laughing at this. I can't believe it. Yes, that is some dark, dark. But if you notice... You're laughing at stuff that is not dialogue. It's all Joaquin Phoenix's... Oh, yeah. It's his... Yeah, exactly. It's how he's portraying... Yeah, it's not dialogue whatsoever. It's his face. It's his body acting that he's putting out there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the script didn't call for any of the stuff that Joaquin Phoenix is doing here. He ends up headbutting the phone booth in response, and then he's back on the subway and a girl getting french fries thrown at her, which Arthur finds amusing. And then these two guys, they just come up to him and they take his wig off as he's laughing and a fight ensues. And he's once again beat up until he pulls the gun out and fires at them. He kills one and then runs the other down before killing him on the platform stairs. And this is obviously taken from that case in New York in 1984, right, Matt? Oh, yeah, positively. Yeah. He's got ringing in his ears. He then runs into a public bathroom and turns it into performance art. Birth of the Joker. You think so? I think if you take this, is that everything here is actually happening. Him killing that last person the way he did, him running away scared, but him stopping and having this moment in the bathroom with the light and the dance and him being it, this is the birth of the, of his Joker hmm. right here. He makes his way home, and from this point on, he's a changed man. And I, I guess, man, it's funny that you say that, Adam, because I didn't even realize when I wrote that part of the summary that this is when he pretty much turns into the Joker, so you might be right on about that. Arthur cleans out his locker and throws Randall under the bus by saying it was his gun, and then he punches out by punching the clock. And this was a this was an interesting scene, to say the least, huh? Uh, Matt, this is more of Phoenix bringing more to the performance than what the script called for, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thomas Wayne, he makes his way on TV because we need more of him as he talks about the subway murders and we find out that they were Wayne employees. So not only are they bringing Thomas Wayne into this and they're bringing Bruce, which we'll talk about later. And boy, do I have things to say about that scene. We're also bringing in Wayne employees, like making everything Wayne does seem to be bad. Like he's part of the bad people in this movie. We're supposed to sympathize with this character, not with the guy who's the father of the guy who will be his arch nemesis later. This is really weird. Yeah, nothing the movie does by compounding how Thomas Wayne is portrayed ever sways me from the idea that this movie is making Joker the hero. And I think that th- that that is a bit of a problem for me. And I also think it's a foundational misunderstanding of you can't say your movie is not political and then have scenes where characters are holding signs that say kill the rich. Those things don't correlate. I'm sorry. 
the only thing that I get that these people referenced was the Telltale Batman game with making Thomas Wayne a dick. Really? He's like mm-hmm. this in the Telltale games too, huh? Yeah, that, and that's really the only instance I could think of outside of um, the Batman kind of plays with this, which we'll talk about, of the Waynes being not corrupt, although the Telltale games, you can argue that, certainly, but them not being the most idealistic of people. Like, they weren't these shining symbols of prosperity that when they died, Gotham went to shit. They're as much of a byproduct of Gotham City as Batman will become. So Wayne then reveals that he's considering a run for mayor and then says that the type of people who commit crimes like that are people who hide behind a mask. <laughs> Boy, that's not obvious. Uh-huh. That's, Get it? Oh, Jesus. And more stuff with Joaquin Phoenix where he's like shaking his legs with anxiousness. I thought this was pretty good stuff. And then we cut to another shrink session, complete with him smoking a cigarette, as Matt pointed out earlier. A lot of smoking in this movie. And then he... Yeah, he's going to sound like Christian Bale's Batman. Yeah. <laughs> He tells her all he has are negative thoughts and people are starting to notice, but it all doesn't matter because they are cutting the funding to the counseling program and that this would be his last session, which also means that his meds are cut off. So at the point the point that his meds are cut off, we can make the argument that that's when he starts going nuts. Yeah, you could because he's that spiral is going you know further and further. Maybe it's not one bad day, but one bad week in the way that this goes, but yeah, I mean, there's, they're trying to say something here about the social system and it failing and the rich and it failing, but it's also just really glosses over like a wannabe manifesto for the Occupy movement. Mm. Like it's not fully, it's not fully thought out, but it's, you know, it's there. Yeah. It's also a critique of the possible repeal of Obamacare that people were afraid of around this time. It's, I, I understand what they're going for. But I think those aspects would have a little bit more staying power if it was modern day, not necessarily the 80s. I agree with you. Yep. We then cut to him heading to a comedy club, hitting the stage, and then completely losing it, not being able to follow his notes. Question, we're going to see later that the De Niro character is going to show this, and then this is what brings him on to the stage later on, brings him on to the show. How did this get out? Like, we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't have digital cameras. We didn't have smartphones. Really? No, the, the funny thing here, there's a couple things to notice. One, Pogo's Comedy Club. That's John Wayne Gacy's clown name. Oh, yeah. Good point. Which is incredibly dark. Um, and that's coming from somebody who was registered as Dizzy the Clown, as I was. Um, yes, we're discussing Joker, and now I was a licensed clown for a time. <laughs> I remember those days. Yeah. <laughs> but the, it would be commonplace at this time for people to have a very large, you couldn't really hide it, but you would have people recording with what would be, you know, almost like that old school type camcorder, would be recording this type of stuff for possible distribution of other of other mediums and stuff. Arthur then sees a clown in a taxi cab. <laughs> Boy, that's not telling, huh? And then, and then he takes his mom to bed. He tells her that he had a big date. And then he finds a letter to Thomas Wayne with her just begging him for help. She just won't let this go. Arthur then confronts his mom about it, and all she says is that he's an extraordinarily powerful man, and he can help us. We see him on a train looking at articles on Thomas Wayne. He walks around with a clown nose and then gives a little performance for Thomas's son, Bruce. Oh, God. This... I, this grinds the movie to a halt. It, it grinds the movie to a halt, and it's just, it's the qu- exact question, the very first word you asked when you spoke for the first time on this podcast, Adam, why? Why bring him yep. into this? To me, this is DC, Warner Brothers said, you have to show Bruce Wayne and Alfred, period. To me, this was a mandate. 
that there was no way out of it because it doesn't do anything for this film. And even the little slide down, haha, he's got a bat pole on his jungle gym, everybody. Fucking horrible, 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 horrible decision. To quote the person that this is possibly inspired by, if Alec Baldwin had played it, this is the worst trade deal in the history of trade deals ever, because this seems like a negotiation that was done by Warner Brothers, as Adam alluded to. (laughs) And if that's not bad enough, he's interrupted by, I mean, this has to be Alfred, right? Who comes out and stops this? Oh, he's he's credited as Alfred. Is he? Okay. Yep. He gets told that his mom is delusional, and then he is told to go. But Arthur just pulls him into the bars. Arthur comes home and sees that his mom is taken away. And then he's visited by a couple detectives who say they asked his mom some questions, and then she started hyperventilating. They asked questions about his involvement in the subway murders and the reason why he was fired. He said it was because he wasn't funny enough. Arthur is comforted by his friend as he's at his mom's bedside. Meanwhile, Murray Miller plays a part of Arthur's act and then just completely attacks him on the air. And then all this stuff of Murray Franklin attacking him, this just brings complete fury to Arthur's eyes. And then we're hearing, due to the unrest in the city, several businesses have decided to remain closed. Arthur sees more of Thomas Wayne talking, and so he heads out to a Wayne protest. He makes his way into theater under the guise of a bellboy, and then heads to the restroom where he confronts Thomas Wayne. He tells him his identity, and Wayne reiterates that he isn't his father. Which I'm glad, because if... Oh, yes. I would have walked out of the theater if they revealed he was the bastard child of Thomas Wayne, which was a rumor when this was... Was it really? When this was getting ready to release, there were a lot of think pieces, because of course there are with a comic book movie, that he was going to be like Bruce Wayne's half-brother. Oh, my God. There's a portion of the... I call it a graphic novel. It was in his issues. But the graphic novel Hush, where... Somebody claims to be Thomas Wayne Jr., Bruce's brother. And I felt like they were trying to ape that, but I also feel like this is part of, because that's the only way that I can kind of go with it, that Arthur is reliving this in a way that isn't really what happened. Because even his outfit, while he's acting like not the bellboy, but the, the attendants, you know, there in the theater, there's no way he doesn't stick out. You know, he's got the outfit, but it's so ill-fitting. You know, he he sticks out like a sore thumb, but everybody doesn't give him, you know, a second glance. And maybe that's also that this is trying to give you a a lesson on the class system as well. You know, that the rich are never going to get a second look to those below them. But it's, I don't know, everything with Thomas Wayne just comes across not well. Thomas says that Arthur's mom adopted him while she was working for him. And then he says that if Arthur touches his son again, he's going to fucking kill him. The detectives leave another message as Arthur climbs into the refrigerator. Or kills himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm going to hit that over and no, over. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sighing yeah, at that. What I'm sighing at yeah. is there is an argument that he spends the rest of the movie in this refrigerator and imagines the rest oh, yeah. of this movie. That was the oh, conclusion yeah. I came to. Especially the way that it's done. In the 80s, you know, there was, and I think the part of the early 90s, there was this giant fear about kids getting into a refrigerator and yes. because you can't get the door open because of how it seals and you can't get that pressure from the other side, the kids were dying inside a refrigerator and that he goes to the effort to take everything out and get inside. You got to think of the possibility that he dies here again. So do, do those refrigerators also prevent dying from nuclear explosions? <laughs> we'll talk about that next year. Who did next year to find yeah. out? Not unless you got a whip. <laughs> 
Matt, as somebody who has really, really praised, I mean, the big thing you have praised about this movie, which isn't much, which is kind of shocking to me, actually, but you have praised Joaquin Phoenix's performance. I mean, this has to be all Joaquin Phoenix, right? This couldn't be in the script. Well, I'm sure there could have been a beat of him getting into the refrigerator. Who knows? Who fucking, who fucking knows? Yeah. I, I don't have the time to read the script, <laughs> which I'm sure the dialogue is probably about 30 pages. Yeah. <laughs> The Murray Franklin Show calls him and offers him a guest spot on the show, given how popular his stand-up clip was. And then he heads to Arkham State Hospital, and he's recommended that he see somebody. And he finds out that his real mom was indeed crazy, even putting Arthur in danger. He then reaches through the bars and pulls the file from the clerk's hands. Oh, boy. He looks through the file and finds news clippings and transcripts of sessions she had where she admitted to standing by while her boyfriend beat him, despite him being such a happy little boy. Does he see Zoe Beats put her fingers to her head, or is this a vision? To me, I think she is a vision completely. I think every time they interact together, except for the last time they interact together, I think she's a vision. I think he stalks her. I think when they're in the elevator together, I think when she talks to him, it's all in his head. Or in Matt's mind, is this just a complete fucking ripoff of Taxi Driver? When Robert De Niro does this in that movie. Well, at least he doesn't take her to a porn theater. That's true. <laughs> we got to do that movie one time. When we open the Patreon, let's let's, let's do that one, because I definitely want to do that with uh, with you guys. I think that would be an interesting podcast. All right, which porn movie are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> Joke her. <laughs> the Killing Poke. <laughs> <laughs> He goes to Zoe B's apartment, who says that she really needs him to leave. And so this pretty much proves that they weren't friends at all. <laughs> yep. Yeah, this I take that he has stalked her, watched her, and everything that he thinks that they've had is all in his head, including her with him at the hospital. All of it is nothing but his fantasy. And I didn't even mention yeah. in the summary, she even, like, they cut to her in the crowd when he goes to the, uh, when he goes and does a stand-up, too, and she's laughing. So, yeah, I, I can definitely go with that. I think this is the first time they had an actual conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of their other ones are fabrications in his head. And, and I'd say this was the one plot point that I think was the most easy to telegraph. Yeah. I think Matt Murdock would have seen this coming. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> when uh, when uh, she brings up his mom, that seems to be it because he just continues laughing. He goes back to visit his mom. He goes on about how she used to tell him that his laugh was a condition and that he hadn't been happy for quite a while. He says he used to think his life was a tragedy, but now he realizes it's a comedy. And I think this is the moment, to me, when he becomes the Joker right here. Mm. As he puts a pillow over her face and suffocates her. Fucking chilling. Yeah. I'll have a controversial opinion then, because why stop now? I don't think there's ever a moment in this movie where he becomes the, the true Joker. I'll say this. This movie's version of it. I guess if I had to pinpoint one, I don't think it's happened yet. Okay. Mm-hmm. We cut the clips of the Murray Franklin show as Arthur starts practicing his gestures and what he's going to say, complete with makeup and, oh, yeah, his gun. So what I – I mean, he's planning on killing himself on TV, correct? Oh, yeah. You see him practicing it, you know, in his own home. Mm-hmm. Which also from Taxi Driver. Yep. Arthur's former workmates show up to cheer him up given the death of his mother, and they say that cops are coming around and that they want to make sure that their stories line up. We then get the most brutal part of the movie as Arthur just brutalizes Randall with a knife. Cool. I mean, this is just 
fucking nuts. I, 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 you know, we've seen pillows over the face. We've seen a few hints of violence here and there. That type of stuff has been fairly restrained. This is, this goes, you know, and maybe that's a, to, to your point that, you know, he just became Joker with a pillow. You know, this is just, he's over an edge. I mean, he just, this is vicious. I think this is the moment, if I had to pinpoint one, largely because he's wearing part of the makeup. He's just got the white. Mm-hmm. Just the white, yeah. Um, and honestly, having seen it, I kind of wish they stuck with that and didn't do the extra colors. Because mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a chilling look. The chilling joke, if you will. Not just that he was stuck in a, <laughs> yes. not just he was stuck in a refrigerator. How's that for a Mr. Freeze pun? We missed that one. <laughs> that was ice. Very ice. But I, but I like that up to this point, the Joker has only killed people who are mistreating him. Yeah. It is still a Joker who's like, I am going after, the punchline is, I go after people who steal, like, steal my jokes. You know, the guy who got him fired, the guy who sold him the gun, the two guys in the subway, his mother for lying to him. But that's what, the rest of this scene is so uncomfortable when his friend's trying to get to the lock. Well, yeah. And, and you realize, he, and that's not, you realize he can't reach. Yeah, and that's, a, and that's the darkly comedic element of this is this guy's name is Gary, and he's a short person, right? He, he's a he's yeah. a short person. He's a little person. He's a little person. He can't reach the lock. And I think the reason why Arthur lets him go is because, like him, he's a freak. And he was nice to him. Like, he doesn't have, you know, like Matt said, he isn't out killing indiscriminately. He's not doing anything without a reason to anybody. And this was a friend of his. He was nice to him. Yeah, he's different. I guess, yeah, it could be. He's a freak, like me. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's just this is such a tense moment. Yeah, it's darkly comedic, but the tension as to whether or not he's going to get killed for this little bit is eerie. Arthur is then chased by cops in the makeup and suit that we recognize from all the ads, and then he makes his way into a subway. The cops come in, and he takes a mask, and everyone is so uneasy, they start causing a riot on the train. They all brutalize the cop as Arthur dances a jig and then walks away. And then we cut to inside the Murray Franklin show as Murray asks them what's up with the clown face and goes over some rules with him right after saying that they are just going to go with the face. And this is when the Joker nickname is born. We are backstage with Arthur as he's experiencing the show from as lonely a place as you can get. And then he gets introduced. Arthur comes out in full clown makeup and he just sits there saying this is exactly how he imagined it being. He says that he just wants to make people laugh and he grabs his notebook of jokes. As he flips through them, he lands on a knock-knock joke. He tells of a drunk driver killing a mother's son. And then he admits to killing the Wall Street guys on the train as he says nothing can hurt him anymore. Adam, all fantasy? Uh, no. Okay. Nope. I think everything that happens here, and I know, I've come back and forth because if everything's fantasy before, why is this not? But I think everything that happens here on Murray's show is exactly what happens. Arthur says that he's tired of pretending that death is not funny. And he says that he has a problem with Thomas Wayne as he doesn't think about what it's like to be him. And he tells Murray that he's awful for wanting to make fun of him. And then he just shoots him at point-blank range and laughs about it. Another just gratuitous, just crazy, brutal fucking shot. Literal shot. Unbelievable. Yeah. Surprising as amazingly shot. I don't mean that as the, <laughs> as the point that it is. But amazingly framed, shot, done. This sequence, because, you know, you think somebody may get shot. There's a famous part in The Dark Knight Returns where Joker kills everybody while he's on a nighttime talk show. But 
for this, you know, the whole you get what you fucking deserve. And just, there's there's no, like, it's instantaneous. And I'm in a packed theater of everybody just going, oh, fuck! Because it's just so sudden and so vicious and so graphically violent in a way that you generally don't get in something like this. So I'm glad they didn't feel the need to pull their punches. But I think this is where the movie pivots to 100% siding with the Joker. And it's not consistent with the character up to this point, because he says, I'm not political, but that gives a whole speech that is partially political motivated. And all the, this is after this, when the riots really start taking over. So he went from being an insulary individual to inspiring a movement, which seems kind of counterintuitive. And also, the punchline should have been, you brought me on this show, but you don't realize I have a bigger following now than you do. And he kills him for that because he finds that funny. That's much more Jokerish than just what he comes up with. Um, and again, I, I think the, the writing is so straightforward to a fault, where it's like it sounds like a kid and a freshman kid in government class going to his first rally, who knows I have to be mad, but I just don't know what, so I'm just going to yell stuff. I want to ask you guys something because you guys you've brought up the term a number of times, and I've always wondered this: what exactly does incel mean? It is involuntarily celibate. Okay. It basically means you're a white person that can't get laid, and it's everybody else's fault. And that was what, and, and that's what people were scared of this movie. That it was going to get these basement dwelling, gun toting. Everybody that I mean, I hate to put a finger on it, but the person that we saw, you know, shooting in The Dark Knight Rises. Okay. That's kind of the face of that incel description. I hate to go political with no, it, no, no. I, that, given a, I asked, yeah, yeah. I asked, and you know. like this movie, please don't pull any punches. Yeah. So we're seeing multiple footage of Arthur's rampage as he takes a ride in a police car, and then the riots continue. There are car wrecks as Arthur is broken out, and people in Joker masks are just on a rampage. And then the Waynes are murdered in front of Bruce again. <sighs> Matt, did, how, how bad did you cuss when you saw them walk down the alley? I buried my hands in my head. It was sort of like watching the opening of Batman v Superman, but this one, I've never done this before, where I audibly said, fuck me, out loud, in the back of a theater. Yep. Take that for what it's worth. <laughs> I did get some offer, but I was just so, I was so fucking mad I couldn't contain, I just couldn't contain, it was like walking figures, it was improvised. I did not, it just, it just happened. Yep. I agree. Like, I could have gone with seeing two people follow them down an alley, and that's it. If you're going to do it, leave it at that. And I don't even need that because, like I mentioned way back in our 89 discussion, it's very important for Bruce and Martha's death to be the result of a random mugging. It's important to the mythos. Don't fuck with it. Don't fuck with the reason that the Waynes are killed. And you don't fuck with the reason and how Uncle Ben dies. It's it's too important to to the characters that come out of that. So this was another one where, like, when they went to the alley, I was like, rolled my eyes, and I'm like, uh, whatever. But then they show it, and, yeah, I think I was the exact same as Matt. I might have been in the same theater on the other side of it at this exact same time going, ah, oh, fuck me. <laughs> yeah, at least with 89, you can say, as ridiculous as it is that the Joker was behind it, it was still a random crime. This is specifically targeted. Is it? Um, yeah. This is an eat the rich movement. And he, he quotes the Joker and calls him Thomas Wayne by, by name. He d so this is, okay. a, this, is a purpose, this is a purposeful assassination. Okay, because my question was, and just to play devil's advocate here a little bit, 
I love that movie. I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather be watching that to be honest. I hate that fucking movie. I'm done with that one. I hate that. Add it to the Patreon. Oh, I hate that movie so much. Oh, it's gonna be a good discussion. <laughs> to play devil's advocate, this isn't the Joker killing them though. This is somebody inspired by the Joker. So does that make it any worse or better? I'm not gonna call it worse. I think it's as egregious because it removes the chance. The, the random chance that they walk down that alley, which it's so funny we're reviewing this after T-Titans go to the movies. <laughs> but but th- the fact that it was that time, one in a million shot, no pun intended, and it was a random act of violence by a nobody. There's still a nobody, but there is purposeful reason behind it. It wasn't a simple mugging. It was an ideological rebellion guised as a shooting. So I think it's 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 still bad, like, no matter how you slice it. Arthur wakes up and stands on a police car and then curls his mouth into a smile, seemingly triumphant in being a symbol of victory for the common man. Right here, I think this movie could have ended with him being dragged out and laid on the hood of this police car. I think there's a couple places you could have ended this movie, and I think that would have been a powerful, very good ending. I don't need him to stand up somehow being Jason Voorhees' superhuman and finding a way to be perfectly okay after this. We see and hear Arthur's laugh from inside an asylum, and he thinks of a joke that his shrink just wouldn't get, and finally walks and dances toward the light as credits roll on Joker. Go ahead. As he's running through this asylum, he's leaving red bloody footprints. Meaning he's dead. Or he's slaughtered everybody. Okay. Because his his comment... His comment in this office is the exact same comment we heard earlier about you wouldn't get it. I think he murdered his psychiatrist that was in that room with him. I have a lot of bad things to say, but I think this ending is great. I love the song choice. I love they use like a Warner Brothers-esque The End that you would have seen in like a Preston Sturgis movie in the 30s. I I think it's a great way to conclude the movie. Yeah, I didn't care for the few minutes before this, as I said, but once we flash here to the asylum, I think it ends on an amazing note. I agree. Because it leaves it open-ended, right? Yeah, it's ambiguous to how you want to take it. This entire thing happened inside an asylum. All right. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Joker? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. Wait, did you not stay through the credits? Oh, God. No, I'm oh, fucking with Oh, you. fuck. <laughs> no. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> fucking asshole. Okay. <laughs> this was a movie that for... The only reason I went to see it initially was because it was Joker and it was Joaquin Phoenix. You know, there wasn't anything else that had driven me to really see this movie. You know, and I went in with some pretty low expectations based on no Batman. Well, guess what? We kind of get Batman. Based on the news that was around it, there wasn't a lot of positives for me going into this. This is a movie that is not exactly your typical superhero affair. I guess it's easy to say it's not an uplifting film in either way, in any way. The closest thing I can I think of when I watch this movie, and I've seen it quite a few times, is I think of American Beauty. I can look at that movie and say, this movie is amazingly made, and I have no desire to ever see it again. Joker is a film that I can look at it and say, I think this thing is wonderfully made, and I need to see it on a fairly regular basis. I think the performances are fantastic. I really do. I think Joaquin Phoenix is astounding in this movie. I think he is absolutely amazing. I know it's easy retroactively. Every time somebody wins a major award, it's popular for the next year, a couple years later, to then tear them down. You know what? No, fuck that. He was great in this movie then. He's great when you watch him now. Zazie Beetz brings 
a welcome distraction to this film that kind of sets you off. It sets you off balance, and I think it's a smart casting choice. I think she does a really good job. Todd Phillips is aping Martin Scorsese. There's no doubt about it. I don't think there's any act or any attempt to even hide that fact in this movie. So it doesn't upset me whatsoever. I think the taxi driver and the king of comedy rips are very obvious, and I think it's done for the purposes of taking what those movies did, taking portions of those movies, and putting them to today. The issues I have with this movie have everything to do about the Waynes, completely. Bruce, Alfred, Thomas Wayne are just anathema of this movie. They have no place. They drag everything down when they're in there. It's, it's really, really unfortunate. But everything else in this movie... Enjoy is not necessarily the right word, but man, I am engaged when I watch this movie. I think it is a fantastic piece of cinema. I think it's a great piece of art. I think it does deserve the praise that it got and that it still gets. I don't know how and what they're going to do with a sequel because I don't need one. I don't want one. However, I said I don't need and I don't want a Joker standalone movie. So for not wanting one, but walking out of this movie going, damn, that movie made you feel something it made me uneasy and and it made me feel and it does that every single time i watch it and i can still have that reaction years later and watching this movie probably six or seven times at this point really says something this i think is a high point of dc films it's not a superhero film it's not even really a super film it's just a film about a mentally disturbed person and everything that he's going through in one bad week I'm high on this film, but there are parts in it that really drag it down. I'm glad it comes in just as two hours because this would have been easy to do a 230, 245 film. But Joker, still one of the high points in this entire franchise in retrospective for me. I'm at a good hard solid eight on this. Solid eight on ten. And by the way, Adam, I said the exact same thing after I saw American Beauty, but I think it was for different reasons. (laughs) Goudreau, you've been relatively hard on this movie. I'm assuming you're going lower than eight, right? (laughs) <laughs> oh, you, you, you wouldn't get it. <laughs> this movie, to quote Scarface, of all things, and bringing this back to the Palma, don't get high on your own supply. And I think Todd Phillips is the biggest narcissist of this entire movie, more so than the Joker. Look, plagiarism in filmmaking is nothing new. There are finite stories, but there are infinite ways to tell them, as so often is said. But to me, when I watch this movie... And I analyze it as I have the two times I've watched it. I've only watched it twice. I think this is a movie and a director that is too in love with their own approach and their own subversiveness, which we'll talk about with a certain big franchise next year, to paint the Joker as anything but a hero. If you notice, we're inside his head, but it's only taking what he's doing and expecting you to run with it. You can interpret it, but you don't really see anything from an alternate point of view because it's entirely constructed from his. The second act of this movie, I think, is very meandering. I don't think it really kicks into high gear until he kills the guy in his apartment. There on, I will say it gets better. There's some moments of of shocking violence and and murder, which I do respect. But the the, the core difference between this and Taxi Driver and why I think that movie succeeds and this one does not is that Taxi Driver is entirely misanthropic to its fullest potential. 
I don't think you are ever supposed to be fully on the side of tech, uh, of Travis Bickle. And that movie is also a true borderline horror movie. I think casting this under the, the superhero banner, no matter what spin you put on it, you're always going to, to quote David Ehrlich, I think this movie and the story in this context, you can never help but feel aspirational. And I think Todd Phillips is the biggest victim of that because you want to see the Joker at the height of his power, regardless of how he gets there. I do think much like The Dark Knight, this is one of the most important superhero movies ever made. I think much like Logan, it falls into that same as far as this is the trajectory of the genre that I want to see continue if it's going to survive now that we're kind of in this post-endgame muddled territory where people seem kind of disinterested. And by the time the end comes up, I'm not going to call this the best thing in the world. I'm glad this movie warrants debate, and I'm glad there are very strong takes on both. But from my own personal view, as a Scorsese fan, as a, as a, as a movie fan, and as a Batman fan, this is something that I think is hamstrung by the director. I don't think Todd Phillips has the discipline or the ability to really handle this material. And I think he, he kind of takes the easy way out at certain points with how he chooses to, to like, the, the way he's getting shot and, and, and things of that nature. So, Joaquin Phoenix's performance is everything that's it's warranted. It's everything that it's hyped up to be. I will never dispute that. I just wish the movie around him was as strong and as delicately handled as he took it. So, I'm sorry, everyone. This is just not my kind of movie. I felt that way walking out the first time, and I think this viewing has only reinforced it. So, I'm going to be half as nice as Adam is, and I'm going to give this a 4 on 10. Man, went all the way down to a 4. I'm the tiebreaker, huh? Oh, man. 99% of the time when I get on these calls with these guys, I always have a score written down as to what I'm going to give the movie. This is one of the few times where I didn't have a score because after watching this for the second time, I didn't have any clue as to how I felt about it because it's just one of those movies that I want to go with. I really do. It's a disturbing movie. It's a movie I don't watch very often. Like Matt, I've only seen it twice. But at the end of the day, I just cannot get past the fact that Phillips decided to call this Joker. Look, it worked. It made over a billion dollars. And the fact that he fought for it like Ryan Reynolds had to fight for Deadpool and it ended up being the hit that it was is very admirable. And I'm not going to deny that. But I just cannot get past the fact that they called this Joker and people are going in thinking, oh, wow, this is how Heath Ledger came to be or this is how Jack Nicholson came to be. Not to mention making it a quote-unquote tribute to Martin Scorsese is just kind of an insult to me. I don't see any way that this movie can stand on its own when it just apes everything Scorsese did and did better way back in the 70s. I don't think this is a terrible film, and I have mentioned points where I do like it, but I do feel like this is a one-performance film. I think everything that is right with it is because of Joaquin Phoenix. I think he's the one who brings everything that I like. But other than that, even De Niro, I think, as Matt said, I think he's sleepwalking through this. It's a one-note movie for me, so it's a five for me, but all of that goodwill is due to me liking the actor in the role, not the director, and not any of his surrounding cast. So yeah, 5 out of 10 for me. Boys, all this being said, we're supposed to get a sequel to this, and we will cover it the week of, in the next couple years when it comes out. What do you guys feel we're going to get in a sequel? I have no fucking clue. The only thing I know is Joaquin Phoenix is returning, Todd Phillips is returning, and Lady Gaga is being cast. That's it. I think they've listed Zazie Beast in the cast as well, which to me is is very interesting. 
I don't think Lady Gaga is going to play Harley Quinn. And I also really hope not. But I have no idea, which kind of has me excited. I didn't need a sequel. Nobody was geared up for it. And sometimes the best sequels are when there was not one planned. I think so many superhero movies, all they are is a setup for what's next, a setup for what's next. The biggest F word in movies right now is the word franchise. And it's an F you to the audience because all it is is a setup for what's next. Joker was something that stood on its own. And the fact that they have to try to create a great story without already having one in mind, I think gives the potential for something great because it wasn't planned. And I think that gives me more hope than if they had planned one in advance. All right. So I, I will make the obvious joke. So with the sequel, we've already got Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. So he's going to make his New York, New York homage. <laughs> Am I excited? Yes, because Lady Gaga. There's my most obvious joke possible. Take that for what you want. But look, I knew as soon as the checks were rolling in for this movie that there was no way this was going to be a one-off. And, and yeah. nor, did, nor did Warner Brothers, considering what has happened to their main DC continuity. So it seemed like an inevitability. But that notwithstanding, they're going to have to come up with something. I, I think now that there's the hype, there's the money, there's the awards, I think that will inspire them to actually make something a little bit more audacious isn't the right word, but something... I think it's going to be a true subversion of what people are expecting. I think the musical rumors is hosh-posh to create buzz. Mm-hmm. Yep. I would love for the whole movie to take place in the asylum. I think that would be something to really interest mm-hmm. me. Love that idea. My main question is, is there going to be a considerable time jump? And if so, are we going to get teenage bro- or even young Batman in this? Oof. Ah, shit. So I hope not, but look, Lady Gaga's in it. I'll be there opening day. Oh, and it also, depending on, you know, if Bradley Cooper is going to be more involved. I mean, he's listed not just as executive producer. But he's, he's got this PGA credit producer, you know, in Joker. So if he's reteaming, you know, and if he helped bring Gaga into this, you know, after the work they've done before, I mean, I think it bodes really well. I think Cooper as a producer, just like as a director, is, is kind of underrated and I think he's overlooked in a lot of ways, so it'll be interesting. And I, th- I think you're right. I think it may subvert in a lot more categories than this one did. Interesting, Matt. You're saying that you think the sequel will be an improvement over this one. I didn't say improvement. I think they're going to go a, a radically different direction because they have no other option. All right. Well, I feel the same way as you guys. I, I, I look at this and I think it can't go anywhere but up for me. With all the awards and everything harped on this, Will it inspire them, or will it make them kind of fall on their laurels? I don't know where they can go from here unless, as Matt suggested, maybe they bring a teenage Bruce into this, which, man, that thought does not inspire anything. And and plus, it kind of goes against what Joaquin Phoenix rebelled against to begin with. He didn't want a multi-picture deal, yet here he is in a sequel to the movie that won him the Oscar. So, And what's going to be interesting in the time since this movie was made and when they're working on this new one, Warner Brothers has been sold, or not sold, but merged with another company. There's going to be new executives, I guess, starting next week, running this portion of DC Entertainment. You know, So there's going to be entirely new brass that's going to green light and sign those checks for whatever they're going to do. So Marvel's been one to completely cancel stuff that they have planned. DC's canceled stuff that they have planned. I hope this happens, but we're getting a new regime in place, and folio de is not necessarily guaranteed. I hope it happens, and with a billion-dollar-plus movie, I find it hard to believe it won't, but let's not forget, there's an entire new regime that's now coming up to Warner Brothers Discovery. 
All right, well, that does it for Joker. Next week, we go to a film that, believe it or not, I've never seen, Birds of Prey. I have a quick story on this one. I sat down to watch it on cable one night. It was on HBO, and literally five minutes in, I fell asleep and didn't wake up till about three hours later. So <laughs> I have no idea what to expect with this movie. Never seen it. Boys, what do you expect when we uh, review Birds of Prey next week? I went into this movie like I do with all DC movies now, arms crossed, because the marketing for this movie was abysmal, in my humble estimations. It looked like Harley Quinn featuring the Birds of Prey for two minutes, because it, it did not look like it was fulfilling the potential. And A, Harley Quinn's never been a member of the Birds of Prey outside of this movie. So this seemed to me just DC trying to recoup some losses get their most popular character. The one thing that excited me was we had a woman behind the camera, which I fully endorsed, and Ewan McGregor playing a Batman villain I've been wanting to see for a long time with Black Mask. So despite the terrible trailers and DC's track record, there was a part of me that I wanted this to be the movie that got them back on the right track. Wow, Ewan McGregor's in this too, huh? Holy shit. Yes! <laughs> I, I'm i sorry! God damn it, Karen. I... <laughs> I Adam, what about you? What are you expecting next week? I assume you've seen this no less than five times. <laughs> this was one, much like Matt, I found the the marketing of this movie unacceptable. It was horrendous. Uh, abysmal is being ridiculously generous to the marketing to this movie. Much like him, the director and the screenwriter had me excited, as well as having Ewan McGregor in this movie playing a villain that I was hoping to see on screen. So take Matt's comments, copy-paste, put them with Bunch, and that's how I felt going into this. With the exception of this movie was going to be the on-screen debut of one of my favorite comic characters, Cassandra Kane, who, along with Damian Wayne, is somebody that I have collected every first appearance of and somebody that I will read in any format so that this was going to be the first time they were going to bring that character to screen. I was extremely excited about until, well, we're going to get into it. All right. And as it seems to happen every other week, I have no idea what to expect. I <laughs> never seen it. So it'll be an interesting watch for me. Might have to watch it a couple times. I'll tell you, the only thing I'm looking forward to is seeing Margot Robbie play Harley Quinn again. Cause I thought she was one of the few fun things about suicide squad. So you are going to be surprised by this entire cast. When you finally get to watch it, you're going to see Ewan McGregor, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Rosie Perez. You're going to be surprised. <laughs> Anya Taylor joy. Is she in this? <laughs> Uh, wrong one. Uh, She's in the wonderful New Mutants, jackass. <laughs> wonderful New Mutants. What about Alexander Daddario? She? No? Okay. No, uh, she's in my room. <laughs> That's it. For her review of the Joker, it was everything it was, I uh, I had built it up to be in my head, boys. I cannot wait to get a little lighter fare next week. If anything, I mean, we followed up next week's just hysterical movie with one that you cannot get any more the opposite of. So I'm looking forward to going lighter again next week. But until we talk birds of prey when i was a little boy and told people i was going to be a podcaster everyone laughed at me well no one's laughing now thank you gentlemen
each member of the team is chosen for his or her own completely unique set of abilities. This is Christopher Smith, known as Peacemaker. In his hands, anything is a deadly weapon. His father was a soldier who trained his son how to kill from the moment he was born. Are you having a laugh? What? You just said each member of the team is chosen for their unique abilities. He does exactly what I do, but better. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, exclusively on Percolated Media. You think you can beat me? You're a fucking moron. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Unless we all want to die very unpleasant death, we're going to have to work together. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. Do I look like the kind of clown that could start a movement? The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Who are you guys? Edited by Garrett. Fucking fabulous, if you ask me. Voiceovers by Adam. Okay, I'm waiting for the punchline. Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. All right, you boys ready? Let me. Uh, uh yes. Yep. Let me make sure. Got my wine. Got my water. Good to go. Yeah, I got another martini. She's just trying to get me wasted tonight. Apparently. Uh, I want a teeny. Oh boy, she is. 
Me. Stop call, call me gay for my drink choices. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that drink. That looks like Kool-Aid. Goudreau <laughs> says this looks like Kool-Aid. <laughs> you should see the look you just got. Which is funny. We went somewhere and I ordered <laughs> ordered a vodka cranberry. Lord goes, isn't that a Cosmo? No. What's the difference? My sexuality. <laughs> Meanwhile, Murray Miller plays a part of Arthur's act and then just completely attacks him on the air. And this is something that David Letterman would do. Like, For the record, it's Murray Franklin, not Murray Miller. Oh, I thought it was Murray. Okay. I have Murray Miller written down here. Maybe you were thinking of Frank Miller. Maybe. <laughs> Dennis Miller. Yeah, right? Arthur's former rook, uh, workmates show up to cheer him up given the death of his father. Or, uh, I'm sorry, given the, yeah, given the death of his father or mother? Did his, mother. Oh, yeah, his mother. That's right. Why did I write father down? All right, let me start no. that again. <laughs> Arthur's former workmates show up to and then curls his mouth into a smile, seemingly triumphant in being a symbol of victory for the common man. As we see, this is too bad. Sorry. Go ahead. I think that I think start, start that again. Start with... that again. Okay. Boys, all this being said, we're supposed to get a sequel to this, and we will cover it the week of next year. What do we? Two years. To, uh, oh, I'm sorry. We're, we will cover it in the next couple of years when it comes out. Because. It wasn't planned, and I think that gives me more hope than if they had planned one in advance. Still there? Yep. I am. <laughs> Hello, my darling. Hello, my baby. Hello, my ragtime girl. Good <laughs> old this. <laughs> All right, so I, I have I will make the obvious jokes. Next week we go to a film that, believe it or not, I've never seen: Birds of Prey, or as Adam likes me to call it, you say it, Adam. Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Yeah, that one. Uh, 